0: and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Gahana Wati is an experienced urban designer with over 14 years' experience in both the public and private sectors with a sound knowledge of design appraisals, master planning and framework initiatives within Australia and internationally. And she joins us today from lockdown in Melbourne. Ah. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, think our our third lockdown guest. Um, Thank you for joining us, Gahana. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Well and healthy, Um, keeping myself entertained and engaged while still, you know, staying at home.
0: That's the main thing, okay, so can I ask tell sure. me a bit about yourself and and why did you des- decide to become an urban um, urban designer
1: Well, firstly, thanks for having me and um, to to create a, a different uh, activity for my uh, to break my week <laughs> this is a, a welcome change
0: oh good, good to hear first that's time, right first time i've been told this is that, that i'm actually uh, i'm a welcome change for someone that's good yes good,
1: for sure um well this is an interesting journey because we are now in a very uncertain period of, of um, our lives and when i started my career as an urban designer i didn't intend to be one i was trained as an architect and uh, I've completed my master of architecture degree in 2008, and we all remember quite vividly what happened in 2008 when it was the global financial crisis.
0: Yeah, that was that was the financial pandemic. Now that's now, it. Now that's we have it. a biological. Now we work.
1: are a 2.0 pandemic, yeah. <laughs> which is both health and financial pandemic. Um, but what I I learned uh, over that that period really is. It is interesting how life can change and, and steer our career and our des- destiny, I suppose. Um, so, graduating as a master of architects, um, master of architecture at that time, there was very scarce. Uh, you know, there was hardly any work for yeah. for a graduate, um, and I was quite lucky that I have a, a very well-connected professor who was my mentor back back then, um, who then say, look are you interested to, to do a work experience and to help out the good folks at the city of Casey? So for those who are not from Melbourne, the city of Casey is one of our uh, fast growing out suburban council. Um, it was the period where the urban growth boundary was being expanded. Uh, and uh, in Victoria we call it the precinct structure planning process where the new greenfields um, precincts are being master planned. So. It was an interesting uh, period in 2009, 2008. um, And coming from Indonesia, I have no idea what a suburban Australia context looks like. And that just is an intriguing prospect of, um, you know, deep diving into a greenfield master planning process, uh, not knowing what typology, the process, and the politics and sensitivities that come with it. Um, so there I journeyed, you know, three hours a day from the CBD where I lived yes, <laughs> to the outer suburbs uh, on a daily basis, keen to learn and keen to help. Uh, moral of the story is always say yes to opportunities that is presented to you, especially when when times was lean. So that went on for about two or three years, and I fell in love with this process of. An integrated design um, process whereby one is not dictating what the outcome is, but one is part of the process of design and the process of not knowing where you'll end up if you follow the process. So that was the starting of my um, love for urban design. Um, really appreciating the fact that architecture has an implication that that you know ripples beyond just. the the extent and the boundary of the site. In fact, it actually has a responsibility to the social and cultural fabric of a place that we contribute to.
0: That's interesting. So you're an associate in open design with Hanson Partnership.
1: I am now a director at Hanson. Oh,
0: sorry, not director, yeah, I'm sorry. Very yeah, recent. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> You've you got a promotion since, 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 uh, since I asked you. Asked you that's good to hear. That's right. I was, was right. going to say that, so you have now more than, what, about 10 or 12 years experience, is it? About 14 years. 14, yes. wow.
1: Well, uh, I was studying and working at the same time. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, um, you know,
0: what has that experience, 14 years, as, as, yes. what has it taught you in terms of how we design our building in Australia? And... You can actually, since you're from Indonesia, um, you could you could actually compare a bit if you like. Uh,
1: well, I haven't been designing buildings since I've um, come out of uni, uh, but I have been engaging with a lot of architects uh, in collaborative process in terms of how their design and their proposition can fit within what we call the planning scheme context. So a lot of the, the projects that I worked on is master planning and creating the tools in terms of how certain areas and certain parts of the city can be um, developed over time and can be managed. And one thing I noticed about Australian um, planning system, more so in Victoria than anywhere else, we are very good in managing our urban system. We regulate every bloody thing. Yeah, (laughs)
0: yeah, that's true, yes. It is,
1: we are very good with that. um, And it is something that we often take for granted because when I have had the experience working in Indonesia about five years ago, um, and they do acknowledge a system in theory, but the implementation itself is rather challenging because of the difficulty in gaining clarity and data. In Australian context, we have that transparency. Um, mm-hmm. Data is pretty available if you know where to get, where sure. to get them from. Um, and understanding that inform us in making our decision better, while in Indonesia is very much about what feels right. There is very hardly any evidence in terms of this is the process that we, we use to inform our design and decision-making process. So in terms of uh, a city planning perspective, Indonesian context is highly opportunistic because okay. of the lack of uh, clarity and system. So everything is challenged and everything is one that is um, pushed to the very limit. In Australian context, um, as you know, we we have a clear system, we have clear data. We also have a very democratic process in terms of how we design. Um, every single step of a strategic project will have to be consulted with the community. It has to be signed off by our councillors. So there is yeah. a very um, rigorous check-in points with everybody. And sometimes, yes, it's good for democratic and having you know, have given every, everyone a chance to express their opinions. But at the same time, I often call it, uh, you know, uh, a horse that's designed by a committee will result in a donkey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> true, true. <laughs> it
1: is, so uh, there is a reason why the experts are the experts and the, the community members are the community members. So I think the balance can be struck where, whereby the experts need to understand exactly what they are after from the community and how the community can be meaningfully um, helpful to their project, rather than driving the agenda of certain projects a hundred percent. Yeah, so I, I see that as two very distinctive um, process and outcomes. Um, well, when when we were working in Indonesia, uh, it is very easy, you know, coming from Australia, having a system that we know how to use and we know how to um, structure, and imposing that. In a context that may not be suitable, okay. so it is that mentality. We are international experts coming into an Indonesian context. This is how you do things. It doesn't go down very well. Trust me, okay. hundred <laughs> percent.
0: All right. So that's actually interesting. So on that point of outcomes, so you've got a great deal of experience in in, in uh, the triple bottom line outcomes through urban design practice. Yeah. Um, with with our with our pandemic. Um, Will the need for those outcomes change uh, do you think uh, moving forward uh,
1: I think it's even more important now. Um, if anything a lot of one of my key focus area uh, of interest at the moment is creating streets for people uh, outcome and what I call a public realm oriented urban design solution to uh, informing architecture outcome, streetscape design, public realm design, and also how we um, create our you know planning codes and planning system, because all of that needs to speak to each other. If we design a system and a code that doesn't understand how buildings are put together and how humans use the space, it will not probably result in the yeah. outcome that we're after. Yeah. And likewise, if the architects are designing out of context or what I call a plunk architectural response <laughs> that can just exist anyway, <laughs> it probably won't achieve the outcome that they're after either. Okay. So. I think that that is an interesting uh, process coming from the humanistic um, perception of spatial understanding, spatial appreciation um, and their comfort and the sense of safety in a space. And starting from there in in approaching design process and uh, in approaching creating of planning codes and system. So from, from my perspective, especially during COVID where suddenly our bubble, especially in Melbourne at the moment, we are limited to five kilometer radius. It's walkable, five kilometers. Okay. Um, and, and suddenly our bubble is so limited to this localized um, context. If anything, all our public realms have to work very, very hard um, in providing that sense of respect and amenity for everyone at the moment, because that's the only way we can actually still interact and feel some normality in our lives hmm
0: so on your uh, you wrote an article about this actually uh it's through, yes for people um very good article actually so it, it contains some uh, some of the new uh vocabulary used by agencies um uh, planners as designers and communities prioritize pedestrians and cyclists now for example a movement uh, network so it's yes cyclists and also I'm, I'm assuming uh, pedestrians yes um what uh, can you go through this new vocabulary though, that, that you mentioned?
1: Yeah, um, there is this, uh, you know, train of thoughts uh, that is permeating through state governments in Victoria at the moment, which is really refreshing and encouraging in approaching how we understand our road networks uh, as movement hierarchy and also as place hierarchy. In the past, we have always seen our networks as road systems, uh, and and they are primarily used to transport goods and people. But as we know, um, you know, streets play an important role for our social platforms as well. Um, and as such, I think it is really encouraging that the government is starting to recognise we need to create places along certain streets, not all streets, and that is achieved through an understanding of what each component of streets um, have in terms of their role Uh, as movement and also as place. So there is a lot of um, uh, practices out there who have been embracing this system and this uh, way of, you know, uh, doing their traffic and transport planning and how they they do their strategic planning and master planning process, which is really interesting. And what I think is also quite um, uh, fascinating is the role of architects um in this this discourse of you know talking about mobility architects are really good and very passionate about when they talk about housing affordability housing supply you know working from home situation but i think the conversation needs to be paired with appreciation of mobility because that is um, equity access equity and affordability can't exist without mobility equity really interesting. I mean, I've been working on a number of streetscape projects and, you know, it's always a debate with the community, with stakeholders and decision makers in terms of how do you divide up the space that is what we call as road reserve. Typically in Victoria, we have 2.5 meter wide footpaths. Whether the road is 20 meters, whether the road is 30 meters, that is often the, the space that is given to people. And From planning perspective, a lot of the time, people are not considered as three-dimensional object, three-dimensional dynamic objects. We're always just numbers. Um, Every projects, every planning applications, there will be a, a requirement to do traffic counts and car park counts and, you know, all of these um, traffic associated um, evidence and thinking to demonstrate how they can work. So from from urban design perspective, this is really challenging because we treat cars as if they're not trainable. We can't train them. They're just there and we have to accept that and they they take up this much space. Um, And most of the time they take up about 80% of the road space. And as we know, 30% of our urban spaces are road networks. So in terms of, you know, efficiency, yeah, it is 30% minimum. And in terms of efficiency, we are clearly not assigning enough space for people. And during this pandemic where everyone has to spatially distancing themselves at least what, one and a half meter from the next person, that creates a three meter barrier between two people, meaning you can't walk side by side anymore unless you go into road reserve and probably get hit by a car. <laughs> okay. So I think that is a, a significant issue that to be considered in terms of how um now that we are all living locally, I think we need to encourage people not to drive more because it's perceived as a safer option. And and as you know, you know, once we drive and we drive for thirty days, that will become the next habit. We work so hard to get right. to
0: you're right. You're interesting. You're sorry, You're interesting. you say that. We, I, I put up an article today. There, were, there was some recently released. Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, research says that three out of four people no longer want to use public transport. They want to use their cars, which which, set, which kind of ties. That's in right. With,
1: with I mean, that is rain. really concerning. I mean, we. It took us decades to get to where we are in terms of active transport yeah. share, yeah. Um, and. You know, at least in in Victoria, 20 or 30% people commute to work in the CBD by public transport, pre-COVID-19. And what we know now is that people are probably not going to come back to the city to work, either because they have the options to work from home, or they are reluctant to use public transport. So all of the infrastructure that's been spent in upgrading a public transport, what does that mean? You know, does it mean their investment that is not um, making any return? I don't think so. But at the same time, I think we just need to make sure that the habit doesn't change because we don't provide alternative options to active transport.
0: Okay, so you wrote um, in the same article and I'll quote you here because it's actually stood out when I read it. It said, um, (laughs) we can safely assume agoraphobia will be ongoing within the community in the coming months. Can you explain how that actually affects designers as yourself?
1: Yeah, um, there was a discussion a while back uh, within the planning community about FOGO, fear of going out. Um, (laughs) I think everyone is getting a bit anxious being in in a crowded space. Um, So it may impact the way, you know, how our high streets will perform down the track because they rely so much on pedestrian footfall for businesses and Uh success it relies on how, um, you know, our office space will perform over time if, you know, big office spaces are toast down the track. We don't know yet. Um, What I think is quite really important from leadership perspective is really an understanding that there is a basic infrastructure requirement that needs to be provided to make sure that community members who wants to participate in social interactions in the public space have the options to do so safely. And uh, brick and mortar shops and premises can still operate mm-hmm. uh, by allowing them to extend and create this what I call thickness um, for what can be occupied within the public realm. If internal space is no longer safe to encourage, you know, eating and dining, yeah, can we perhaps occupy some of the road space to, to enable that activity. Mm, okay. So this is about making our infrastructure work harder and be creative in terms of how we do that.
0: Tell me about your prediction about, about post COVID design uh, in terms of, of, of an urban, urban context, will it go into the direction of being more people friendly? Um, I mean, from a, from a government point of view, or will it go yeah. into a more utilitarian direction? Um, Or maybe a bit of both.
1: I think if anything, if there is any optimistic outcome that we can gain from this, is the importance of being nimble. This is from government's decision-making process and also the community in expecting that change can happen so quickly. And I just had a discussion with with someone in the office today about this post-COVID situation. I don't know if there is any post-COVID situation because I think what will probably happen, there's going to be lots of back and forth trial and error um situation that may happen i mean this is what happened in melbourne at the moment you know we went to stage three back in april and then we were going down to stage two in in may and june then right. we got again to stage three and then now stage four right. i think that ability to be flexible uh in terms of how we work how we live how we travel it's um absolutely critical um, and there's always multiple plans, I think, in terms of how we operate back to normality. I think it's not the the new normal is always about the next normal. What's the next normal? What's the next normal? It's yeah. the next normal. There's always iterative process. That's how I see it. And that put a lot of questions about, you know, workspaces. Is, is office going to be ever the same way? Or is office going to change and mutate into... a a space that is used for training and induction because if my company is hiring three other people Mm -hmm. and they have no idea who everyone else in the office is then they will never meet them in person because of covid it will be challenging in terms of how we can integrate them back into our office culture if there is no permanent office situation or or arrangement
0: yeah that's that's that's
1: my prediction i think it is both
0: it's a good prediction, actually. Um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> Both I'll,
1: flexible and and regimented.
0: Yeah, that, that's a safe and good prediction. I was going to say so. What you <laughs> on, on that on that on that point, you you mentioned that working from home is perhaps a new normal. So, will do you think? I mean, I guess you, you can you can look at it from a Victorian point of view, a state point of view. Well, do you think that that'll mean there'll be less inclination for governments to fund public transport um, infrastructure um, because we're using far less. Um, mm. And does, how does that actually affect then this whole public spaces thing? I mean, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? It, it's kind of, it's, it, it's kind of one negates the other, you know, you know, you know, you want more public space, you want more walkability, but people, most people don't live. I mean, we're suburban as you point, point out in the beginning. So right. how does that actually affect, affect the design? I mean, people have to get to somewhere to be able You're to.
1: Right. And I think if I can circle back to where we started in terms of movement and place, and understanding road networks as both, so we can't treat all network space as the same. Um, and there are places in terms of where car movement or traffic movement can be prioritized, and therefore pedestrian movement is deprioritized. And we're trying to funnel people more towards certain lower-order streetscapes and and treat them well along those streetscapes. Alternatively, I think when we think about you know road networks and and pedestrian movement we need to think about it as uh what i often consider three factors there is space consideration in terms of physical space that we allocate right. for each mode of movement there is time um consideration because you know people and cars and cy- cyclists move differently in terms of their speed what experience and and how far they can get and the last thing i think is about risk in the past cars always is considered as the riskier yeah. mode of movement because they, you know, they require bigger space to, to maneuver. They, they take more, more time to stop or they can't just stop immediately like a, how people do. Yeah. Um, but now human is also considered as a risk factor because of yes. COVID and health situation. And therefore that requirement for you know, spatial uh, distance is a serious consideration. So to my mind, this shift in balance of risk, time, and space need to be seriously considered in how we reallocate our road spaces. Um, is it about reducing speed, uh, car speed, in certain streetscapes so people feel they're safer to, to walk on the footpath or to extend uh, their spatial um, you know, uh, presence within the road reserve? Mm-hmm. or for cyclists to, to feel like, yes, I can let my children cycle there because cars are not going to fly down the road. The second consideration I think is about, can we close up some of the road space so there is some spill out activities that can happen um, on, the, on the road reserve rather than just within people's front yard. So there is a lot of, um, I think, negotiation push and pull that can happen. A lot of it lies in the political <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, courage of decision makers.
0: Yes. Um, so may- maybe you think we should? We-, we might end up all like Jakarta. We're all driving. Oh mope- no!
1: <laughs> driving,
0: dri- millions driving mopeds no, everywhere.
1: <laughs> that is terrible. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> that is the last thing I imagine what will happen. Well, you know that- what's interesting? Um, I I was listening to this committee called Future Melbourne Committee I had a webinar about three months ago when we were just going into Stage Three lockdown in Melbourne. And some scary statistics were presented to us. Uh, one being that, you know, there's about 600,000 people commuting to Melbourne to work okay. uh, pre-COVID. And if the government was at a time contemplating, you know, how do we bring people safer back to the city to work if we all um, we are back to, to working from the office? And they were saying, well, one contemplation was um, to reduce the tra- public transport capacity to 25% meaning so everyone can socially distance within the uh, public transport system. And that then still leave about 400,000 people finding out alternative ways to go to the city. And as we know, during peak hours in Melbourne, the road system can only cater for about, you know, 17,000 to 20,000 cars. How else are we gonna accommodate the the remaining 300,000 people back to the city? So there is this serious logistical issues about how people can go from home back to work if we are ever going back to work Um, which is why I think the the government's direction was always about stay at home because our road system cannot cope with you going back um, without taking public transport safely and it's also quite interesting why in Australia we don't really trust our children to travel on their own uh that,
0: that that that's a whole that's a whole another. That's pod, a whole that's, other
1: issue. That's a whole <laughs> and a whole
0: another podcast, Gahana. So
1: I at, totally agree.
0: Out of interest, um, if you did had not become an urban designer, just out of interest, what would have been your plan B? <laughs>
1: oh at, dear. Um, it's
0: okay. You can tell me. I'm only going to share this with the rest of the world. It's fine.
1: <laughs> I think I'll be a transport planner. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's something towards still about creating uh, space for people. I think this is a personal agenda for me. Yes.
0: Um,
1: I don't drive and don't own a license. Okay. So creating walkable space and safe space to me is really personal and important. Um, so because it is something that I experienced on a daily basis in terms okay. of how challenging and difficult it is to go to places if you, don't, you can't drive.
0: Yeah, uh, it yep. tr- try living in Sydney. Uh, you're like you're lucky you're in Melbourne. So is is it so is it space or is it movement that that draws you to this
1: per- uh, field? Space very oh, space. much about pedestrian experience. Because okay. Yeah, it is always about you know. I think our tolerance and and inherently pedestrians are the laziest people. We don't,
0: <laughs> we, don't
1: we don't we don't walk because we we love it uh other than for exercise and and for you know recreation purposes we walk because we have to right and and for me it is about reduction of that perception of distance through creating interesting and 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 uh amenable spaces and if it is safe there is no reason why people wouldn't want to do it okay yeah hmm.
0: Interesting. <laughs> that, that's been very enlightening, Gahana. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your, your views and, and, and your very interesting ideas. And, and, and I, 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 quite in, I quite enjoyed listening to you and, and I know some of our listeners. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Thank you. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brent O'Mletic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.